and on to today's voyage aboard the Titanic, or at least a safe and most savory look at the Titanic and the glorious Edwardian food that was served and planned to be served on that uh, tragically faded ship. And who better to tell us the tale than journalist Veronica Hinkey, who literally wrote the book on the subject. And can I oh, here's your book. Well, the, the book is up in front here. Uh, it's The Last Night on the Titanic, Unsinkable, Drinking, Dining, and Style. Several renowned Chicago area chefs contributed historic recipes to the book, including the James Beard Award-winning pastry chef Gail Gann, who is on board today to join Veronica in the discussion. Gail will help provide a sweet ending to this Titanic tale. Page turn. Thank you. So, sorry about this, but put on your life vests and let us experience the tasty tale of the Titanic. Veronica and Gail, welcome on board. booked you for uh, September. September. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of the reasons I was looking forward to being here finally is because what a great room this is. Everyone in this room loves to study food and food history and, and so many people here have, uh, you know, great background and experience in working with food. Which helps me not feel so alone in the kitchen always. Yeah. You know, you're back there, you don't know if anybody cares. And so when you come to a public event and you get a turnout like this, you're like, oh, okay, I'm not by myself. Right. You know, obsessively reading about the history of cooking. Yes. I have a similar feeling with the food stories that I write and the book itself. Is anyone going to read this and really want to know more? And it's so neat to see people here today that, you know, they're, they're interested in this kind of thing. And, um, I reached out to you, Gail, right away when I started my book because I knew Gail as was synonymous to me with food history and loving it. And because that's so old, is that what? Right. <laughs> not just the craft of making the foods, but studying, you know, what periods and eras made a difference mm -hmm. in foods we eat today. Because it impacts how we cook now. You know, you can't deny the history of many countries that influence our cooking. And, you know, the food on the Titanic, the way I kind of saw it is it's continental. 
cuisines, right. which is sort of a fascinating cuisine that has to, you know, appeal to all different levels of class and of, you know, palates. Right, and that was a real challenge on the ship. Exactly, and uh, on that note of the intercontinental representation of the foods on the ship, what I was amazed by was that they brought in uh, an Italian entrepreneur, Luigi Gatti, to introduce French restaurants in what would have otherwise probably have been, you know, English run kitchens with English chefs. Um, one of the things that you told me when we first started talking about the book is that you had studied in England, and so that's where a lot of your passion came from. Right, I lived there for three years, and so, and I was working at a country house hotel, Staffordford Park Hotel, which is, it's kind of like Downton Abbey, but you could stay there. And it was 27 bedrooms. It was the Lord and Lady Gretton's uh, hunting estate, like weekend hunting estate, on 500 acres. So, you know, afternoon tea was a staple. You know, pretty much anything that happened mid 1800s is still going on in England. They don't let go of things easily. So, you know, I think afternoon tea started in 1847 by one of Queen Victoria's bedlate in English culture, in English high culture that they needed something to tie them over to seven or eight o'clock's dinner and afternoon tea was the was invented and she brought it to Queen Victoria and that became the norm. So you see what I mean? Why I <laughs> and all of her knowledge and her uh, passion for knowing those types of things. Um, I kind of figured anybody that makes their own root beer would have a passion for history and food and where these things come from and um, who has seen the new Downton Abbey movie? Has anyone gone yet? Yeah, preview. Before it was even. Yeah. Did you? Yeah, we went to a preview, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, what I love about this perspective of looking at the Titanic is it's not just about the Titanic. It's about how do they live in Downton Abbey life and in Edwardian era, the Edwardian era. How do right. they actually live? Well, and the whole series starts off with the headline, the heir to Downton Abbey was killed on the Titanic. That's the, that's the beginning of the series. And that's why this whole search for Matthew and you know the whole thing is because of the Titanic. Um, one time, I was at uh, Harvard University last summer, because Gio was going there. And in the library at Harvard, they have a Gutenberg Bible. Oh. And if you go read, uh, what family donated it. It's a family whose son was on the Titanic. So the article is the same article as there. I mean, the way it impacted so many lives. Well, and how many, was it 1,000? How many passengers were there? About 1,200. 1,200, and half survived about. Yeah, about half. What I want to know is what got you interested in doing this? I mean, this isn't just an article. It's not even just a blog post, you know, it's a book. So how did you, what inspired you to start writing this book? I love the way you say that it's a book, because I felt it every day. It was like, you definitely sweated out and writing a book more than you do with a magazine and newspaper article, and it started from a magazine article. Okay. I grew up in northern Wisconsin, and as a child, I heard about the Titanic, because there was a man in my hometown, and his picture's right here, this is Popcorn Dan. Another foodie, he had a popcorn wagon, and he lived as a caretaker in a big Queen Anne-style mansion on the Wisconsin River that was rumored to be haunted. And people believed that the Titanic sank 
Many people still think that there's some link there to this haunting of the house that Dan lived in and you know, the, the legend of war. Maybe that's why the sinking occurred. Um, and ironically, a man from Chicago was killed at Union Station. He was murdered on his way up to my hometown to foreclose on that mansion. And so the, the rumor mill gets even thicker with that Titanic tie to Chicago because Pop Quentin was in steerage class. He did not survive. I was always in awe of him because growing up in northern Wisconsin in those days, it was you know a lot of paper mills, one grocery store in town. No one traveled much back in the 70s when I was growing up there. And I thought, how did this man get to be on the Titanic? Right. And, and it wasn't cheap. It was not. There was a range of prices. I read that first class was at the time was forty five hundred dollars at the time. At the time. So. And I think steerage was like it was like one hundred twenty five dollars, which yeah. is like fifteen hundred dollars nowadays. You know. So it was still a lot. Yeah, it was a lot just to you know be in steerage. Yeah, and I wanted to find out where did he get this money from? Working as a caretaker of a mansion and operating a popcorn wagon outside of the, our little cinema that's still there. And I took that with me all my years. When I moved to Chicago and started writing about food, I always had popcorn Dan tucked away in the back of my mind. Um, and I wanted to do a story about it in the worst way. We were getting close to 2012 and we were having an anniversary. So I thought, in 2011, I started pitching, thinking, I have got to tell a story for the 100th. That was like my goal, to have something published that was a way to tell a story about a heroic person like Popcorn Dan. So I started researching, and I came upon a lovely spreadsheet that was put together by Premier Exhibitions of items that were going up on an auction and they were wine and champagne bottles. So I contacted Wine Enthusiast magazine. I said, I have to do the story. This is going to be wonderful. It was a terrific story, 350 words. And in January, three years ago, coming up, it'll be three years since January, I was at my desk working on a Saturday night, and uh, I got this Facebook message. How many of you use Facebook Messenger? I use a lot more now than I did then. So I was a little suspicious, mm. but I thought, well, maybe it's somebody just writing me about, you know, somebody I didn't know. So I thought, well, what do they, what do they want? Um, and the, the man wrote, he, what he said to me was, are you the person that wrote this article in one enthusiast magazine? And I wrote him back and said, yes, you know, do you have a question or a comment or something? He said, I am the publisher of an imprint of Simon and & Schuster. I want you to write a book on the topic. Did you know they this? called you? I love it. Oh, yes. Yeah. So you didn't have to pitch it or anything. Well, I actually did. Okay. Like he said, you have to write a proposal. Okay. So I spent like a weekend, you know, until three in the morning, both nights, trying to get a proposal together. And has anyone written a book proposal? They're pretty. <laughs> I do it with people, though. I don't do it myself. I do it with the writers. And you still know that feeling of it was sent in. Oh, so, yeah. Is it worth all the work I'm putting into it? So, and I got the assignment. I got the book assignment. So, it was his idea. His name's Alex Novak. And he, all he gets to publish is history. 
Could you imagine how cool that is? Your whole job is history books. So this is one of his first culinary narratives, probably his very first, and it's culinary narrative where there's stories told throughout, of course, because that was my number one goal, is to honor the people that were on the ship and crew, passengers, and tell their stories, but then also to include some engagement by the reader with recipes, but thanks to people like Gail, there are recipes, she contributed the fabulous apple meringue that Catherine made, is Catherine? Yeah. Catherine made this beautiful apple meringue from the uh, recipe that Gail contributed, and Gail also contributed, you contributed the chocolate eclairs. Right, yeah. And then we should talk about uh, Steve McDonough, who did the co he did some cocktails for it, didn't he? Yes, he did. Was, what I understand, there was, only, was there only one cocktail that was named by name on the Titanic, or is there more than, way more than one? Because, I read that somewhere, but it's kind of dicey with the cocktail, because it is a cocktail, and it's a palate cleanser. And it was served at the dinner table right before dessert. Okay. Yeah, and it was the, who knows? Who can tell us what, what cocktail? It's got champagne in it, and it's frozen. It punch? Punch romaine. Punch romaine, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Punch on romaine, and it's kind of like a, it's a, a menu item that people have really focused on. With people that hear about it, they love it, they recreate it. We, we recreated it using his recipe mm -hmm. this summer at the Gage, and it's, it's a, you have to have a spoon to consume it. It's a very thick, you know. It's like a slushy. Like a slushy, yeah. <laughs> Only alcoholic. It, right, like a brandy slushy. Yeah. Those are the best. <laughs> yeah, does anybody in here like brandy slushies? They're like one of my favorite. I can't believe everything is out of you just have brandy on ice? Well, it's frozen. It's like a slushy, frozen with brandy in it. And, um, and then you put it in as like a brandy snow cone. This is kind of like that, kind of like a um, champagne snow cone. And um, you know, Steve was very helpful yes. too with sharing that because we really wanted to make this book a collaboration. and ideas from Chicago and from throughout the Chicago area. So I couldn't have happened without you guys. I found it really fun to contribute because it got, you know, gave me something to research. And I even, I, I planned a trip to Northern Ireland where the Titanic Museum is and was hoping to go like before I submitted my stuff, but I had to cancel at that last minute. Um, but there is a Titanic Museum that I'm going to get to that's in Northern Ireland, and it's, I think it might be where some of the ship was built or repaired or something, where the ship was built. Have you been there? Yeah, in Belfast. So I, that's my, my destiny, is what I want to go see that. Belfast is high on my bucket list, too. Mm -hmm. And I want to go for another reason to see the murals that are so celebrated there and, and to go to some of the restaurants that are in my book. Uh, there are a couple of different restaurants from Northern Ireland that are represented in the book. I really wanted it to be representative, representative of Ireland, England, and then also we have a, a dish here today that Deb made, a pea soup that was a recipe contributed by Craig Flynn 
from a Chinese bistro in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Yeah, and he, he's a wonderful chef too, and I reached out to him. Who can tell me why I wanted to include a Nova Scotia chef in the very There's a big cemetery in the shape of yes. the ship itself. Yes. The graves are outlined. It was formation of a ship hall. Oh, yeah. And what else is there? Is it a memorial? I think there's a big memorial there. And that's where the McKay Bennett sailed from to pick up the people that did not make it and were in the water and tragically passed away. I really wanted to be an example of all the different locations that were involved. New York City, there are recipes from, there's one recipe from Denver. Um, we wanted to include the um, Denver piece of this, which for the most part is Margaret Brown. There's a picture of her down here. Um, the Brown Palace Hotel, where Margaret did a lot of her entertaining for her philanthropic programs, uh, contributed a, a recipe for a mint cocktail. So it's a kind of an example of how these recipes were planned. And, uh, do you have a question, Catherine? No, why don't you mention your Unsinkable Molly Brown. Yes, I should have said it. Unsinkable Molly Brown. The museum I worked with on researching uh, her was very, very clear. Please try not to call her Molly Brown. But I always want to call her the Unsinkable Molly Brown. And I've gotten to know her, her great granddaughter. What did they want you to call it? Margaret Brown. Oh, or Mrs. J.J. Brown. Um, and you know, for today, I think it's safer to call her Molly, the unsinkable Molly Brown, because um, that's how I think she really, truly is. She was one of the most amazing people that I learned about in the uh, book. I had heard of her through, you know, for, since forever from the movies. But what I didn't know, what I learned in my research was what a um, what an amazing hero she was. When she was rescued on the Carpathia, the Carpathia rescued uh, people in the lifeboats. Right. Uh, right away, she started uh, organizing a way to recognize the captain of the Carpathia. And she organized the, the leaders at the time, in those days, most of them were men. So there she was, there's a picture of her right down here with, uh, I'll show it to you later. It's with her and the men that were part of the group um, to honor the captain of Captain Rostrand of the Carpathia. On the lifeboats, she organized the women that were in her lifeboat to row. She encouraged them to row throughout the night uh, to keep warm. And how many people would be thinking of helping other, I mean, I think a lot of us would, but someone in her, she was traveling in first class, unbelievably wealthy. And why is she in the book? because she was the inventor of so many different entertaining uh, tools and styles. She invented an electric buffet cart so that when she had parties at home, she could just tune it around and put the hot things in the hot spots and warm things in warm spots, cold and, and on ice. Um, and she was, she was a really wonderful um, homemaker and uh, host. For Valentine's Day, she'd take out all of her books 
in her, her library, remove them, and replace them with only red books. And she would do red and green for Christmas, and this was all what her great-granddaughter told me. And that's what I wanted to do in this book, is sort of replace those Hollywood movie identities we have with these people with the real stories of who, who were these people. The interesting things that I read, you know, I think it was like 19% of all the men on the ship survived, a very low number because it was women and children first. Um, and there's lots of tales of, you know, the wife of a couple not getting in the ship because her husband couldn't and she stays behind. But because they, the lifeboats needed rowers, that was how some guys got, got to go early or got, you know, got off the ship because they'd throw one or two in to row the ship to row the, the lifeboat. And there's tales of you know half-filled lifeboats getting launched, because they really didn't, you know, I try, to, I try to put myself in that moment, and it's not a, a one-hour thing. It would, like they, at first, they didn't realize it was really going to sink. They knew there was, you know, they heard a little noise, and they knew something was up, but it wasn't clear that it was going to completely sink the ship because it was unsinkable, they thought. Right. So as they're evacuating, they're not filling up the lifeboats to capacity. They're sending them off half full, you know, as they kind of get enough people and they were a little worried that, might, that the lifeboats might get overfilled, so they, you know, just kind of launch them before they're fully filled. And, you know, I just, I try to imagine the, what was it, like six hours that it took for it to, to actually, to actually you know, clean yeah, the of you know, just sort of changing from we've got a problem, Houston, to you know, we're goners. Yeah, it's just an incredible thought. And um, one time, you know, I cook sometimes on cruise ships. Um, and, you know, it's a thing chefs get to do. We invited to you know take the cruise and eat. You know, cook a few dinners and do a couple classes, and you get to cruise for free. Um, so one of my first ones I ever did it was uh, an all women's chef event they were doing on the QE2, mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth II, so I brought the, the book from that. And um, but the thing that was interesting about this, I think my son was like a year old at the time, and when I looked at the route that we were taking, I was told that it's the exact same route the Titanic tried to take. So I got kind of scared, <laughs> and I'm like, and if I need to get off, like, how does that work? How, what do you do now? They can like bring a helicopter and you know pull you off if something were to happen. But um, you know, there was a week where I was thinking about I'm taking this journey, you know, from England to New York City, and it's the one that the Titanic tried to take. It's kind of emotional while it was yeah. on there. Yeah. It was. Similar for me, I was invited to go on the, at that centennial year after that wine enthusiast story, I was invited to go on the journey they were going to take on that route. And I know those feelings you have. Yeah. Oh, wow, but you actually did that. Um, the other thing, I brought a couple of cookbooks with uh, that are sort of from that era because I'm a little fascinated with England in general, you know, starting with Queen with Elizabeth R in the 1500s, but. Um, you know, the late 1800s really, I mean, cooking becomes this respectable thing. You know, Escoffier kind of legitimizes us, and, you know, the Ritz happens, and Cesar Ritz and him pair up, and they do the Savoy Hotel in London. And so I actually I brought my, one of my Escoffier cookbooks, I have two, but um, apparently one's unauthorized uh, 
version of it, and this one looks like an authorized one. I think this is from 1907. So this is kind of what people were cooking from at the time. But if you ever see pictures of the kitchens of the Titanic, they're fantastic. They're like these, you know, old giant square copper pots that are, you know, hand raised probably, and you know, it's a it's a hot environment down there, and it's these young boys with like a knife holder on their waistband that they stick their knife in. Just, I mean, I've worked in ship kitchens and they're small, but you know, this was a glorious kitchen that was just so regal because of, you know, the, the celebration that, that it was. Um, so Escoffier would have been sort of what they were, you know, cooking from and using as their Bible for their sauce making, for, you know, for everything. So I brought that. Um, I also brought Douglas's beatings, which is kind of uh, yeah, it's like the joy of cooking for England, and it's a little earlier. I think Mrs. Beaton's born in 1861, so this book doesn't actually have a year in it for some reason. I guess they didn't think there was going to be a second edition, but it's got all these terrific advertisements in it for like OXO cubes, and you know, it's all this household tips, um, Howard soda. So if you want to take a peek through this, Leon Parents was a thing back then. Um, but it gives you kind of a feel for the era and the difference between a home cook and, you know, a male-dominated professional kitchen, which the Titanic was. And the third book is... Um, I just grabbed it because it's really cute. I think this one's from 1925. It's called Coffee and Waffles, but again, it sort of gives you a feel of that era and, you know, what recipes, how recipes were written, what ingredients were common, um, and I always see food as a form of expression, like a yes. form of art. And especially um, when you look at home cooks and home cookbooks that are meant for domestic home cooks, it gives you a good idea of what women were doing to express themselves creatively. Right. Um, and, and sort of what their lives were like. You know, a cookbook usually had washing instructions and cleaning tips, and you know, that was sort of they were, you know, domestic goddesses back then. They were using, taking care of the family and the home as their work and their form of expression. So I just find it interesting and really reflected well in books from that period. Now, where did you find these three books that you have today? You know, my husband um, buys and sells used books, so when he's at used book sales, he'll pick up food ones for me. So I think, I think that, I think that Mrs. Beaton's actually got from my neighbor at Stafford Park in England. So my, when I worked there, I lived in the Grace and Favor cottages, which are these little thatched cottages that are usually on the property of a, a great house where the older employees live out their lives, live out their retirement. They don't have, you know, like a 401k there or anything. So what happens when you're 70 or 80 and, you know, no longer able to work, you live out the rest of your life in the Grace and Favor cottages. So you're given a home. If you're in the good graces of the Lord, you're given a home to live out your life. So when I worked at Staffelford Park, I lived in a grace and favor cottage. And my next door neighbor was Mrs. Essam, who was 92. And even though she was Mrs. Essam, she never married. But you know, when you were in service, you were called Mrs. whether you had married or not. She was single her whole life. Um, and she taught me a lot about British cooking, she taught me my Victoria sponge, and 
you know, mushy peas, and I, this was her copy of Mrs. Beaton's that she gave to me. Oh, how precious. On the other side of me was Mr. and Mrs. Penniston. They were 94. He was the head gardener, and she was the head florist for the house. And they still, still and they um, weren't comfortable with indoor plumbing. They didn't feel that it was sanitary, so they still used their outhouse in their backyard um, at 94. So that means at like three in the morning, the light goes on. You see Mrs. Penniston wandering out to the outhouse in the back. Yeah, and, and these cottages are coal-fired. There's no no heat, no like central heating. You have a coal. Anyone here know how to light a coal fire? Like, I had to learn that. Did you take a stick that you light first? I can't, now I can't even remember. And part of the trick is like, don't ever let it die. You know, you just keep loading right. it. But I'm forgetting now, actually. What I do remember is I'd hang my laundry outside on the line and back with my bras are hanging on the laundry line. And they'd be covered with like little black specks because there's soot from the coal that comes off the fireplace. Yeah, so I like speckled bras. <laughs> so, you know, were any of these books influenced? I am influenced your Apple Marie. I am always looking in these books, and I'm not only books like this, but like I have my grandmother's card file, you know, her three by five card file, and I have other people's grandmothers card files. I find them at tax sales, people give them to me, which is the saddest thing in the world that like no family wanted these heirloom recipes. So I collect yeah. heirloom recipes, I collect um, you know, old pie pans and cake pans and people give me their grandma's, you know, ice cream bomb mold, I have Julia Child's Madeline pans. So I I have a lot of old stuff that I'm willing I love taking care of it. Um, but I love going through and find like, what did I find last night? I was looking through, and I found a recipe. It was called um, Creme Celeste. Does anyone know what that is? It's a recipe from New Orleans. It's an old recipe. It's, it's sort of like a panna cotta, if you look at it, but it's got some sour cream in it. Um, like I was going through my grandma's card file once, and I found a recipe for emergency cake. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I was just like, oh no, Uncle Milk's coming in 20 minutes, and I don't have anything to feed him. You know, it's an like that's an emergency for my grandma in 1920. So she needs to make a cake fast, right? Yeah. And it must have turned out well, and she liked how it tasted. So she wrote down the ingredients and you know the proportions she had used, and called it emergency cake. But I just love like that my grandma's life was so not complex that, you know, there's an emergency and what will solve it is cake. Yeah, <laughs> so that's the solution, I just love that. So I love looking through these and finding, you know, these interesting old recipes that have, you know, quaint names and... Quaint. Yeah, that's the word that anything apples, meringue, uh, what was the other one? Celeste, the creme celeste. Creme celeste. Doesn't it yeah. just make you feel warm and fuzzy to turn the name? And you know, also they're honoring people often. Yeah. You know, yeah. Peach Melba was named after Dame Nellie Melba, the, the opera singer. Um, Scaffier made it to honor her. And then when she went on a diet, he invented Melba toast for her. <laughs> That's why Melba toast is what it is. Oh, he didn't know about and, Melba toast. Yeah, you know, Anna pa the Pavlova is named after Anna Pavlova, the famous ballerina, Russian ballerina, 
It was a chef trying to get her attention. He had a crush on her, named the dessert after her, you know, kind of modeled it after her. It's this the fluffy meringue with, you know, it looks like her ballet skirt probably looked. I hear it was unrequited love, though. So, no, no, yeah. Well, she traveled with her mother because she was single and, you know, it wasn't proper to travel alone in those days. But I just, I ended up finding lots of inspiration from old cookbooks. Well, what about the apples meringue? What was the or apple meringue? It is, it's called apple meringue, but it's basically, uh, the thing I find interesting about it, it's a custard that you make with yolks, some apples that you cook, the two come together, and then you make a meringue to top it off and you know bake it at the last minute to brown off that meringue. But, you know, so practical that they use the yolks in one half and the meringue in the other half, so like there's no waste. That's a real, you know, typical thing from recipes in those days where like, it wasn't like you had, you know, you needed five yolks and then you threw the whites out, you didn't. Right. But the dessert, you know, incorporated the use of the whites as well, I loved. And the apple meringue, I actually was hoping you would pick that one. Oh, really? Because oh. it was on the lunch menu on April 14th, which was the last lunch on the Titanic. That night was when the Titanic struck the iceberg. And we know this because two people saved menus. Right, they brought them on the, like in the lifeboats they with them, them. Which is the kind of thing I would do, right. you know? Yes. <laughs> but, these people. Right, but, but you know, for, for collectors out there, the idea that any of this ephemera still exists is, is fascinating and amazing. But I also love thinking about the bottles of champagne and wine that are still down there. You know, they've been stored properly for, you know, ice cold, like that champagne so cold. Yes. Yeah. And um, we, the, the two people that saved the lunch menu from April 14th, which is so key because, you know, we know about the apple meringue, we know what cheeses. Oh, yeah. and a sort of cheese which I thought was so interesting it wasn't just English cheeses or French there was a, an Italian one on there too um, I'm trying to remember was Gorgonzola, Gorgonzola. I was on there. as well as Roquefort Camembert oh, Cheshire right Cheddar and then there was Saint Eval has anybody heard of Saint Eval I understand it. it's a cream cheese it would almost be like Philadelphia cheese today, and a hundred years from now, the Philadelphia company is no longer around. Okay. It was like that was St. Bell. I found that out. I asked uh, the great grand, the great niece, great nephew of uh, Nell uh, Snyder, who was a honeymooner on the Titanic. He has a cheese company, and he used to be in Chicago. It's called I Got Cheese. Has anybody heard of that? He's in the Twin Cities now, and we talked about this. And he knows Saint-Yves. Well. He knew that, and it was sort of like a fresh, fresh, spreadable. And so in looking at the cheeses, and seeing that this was on the April 14th lunch menu, and then also the gentleman behind me there with my friend Astro's mother when she was real little, um, he wrote a letter home on April 10th about the lunch that he ate. It was the first day the Titanic sailed, and he wrote a letter home. It was so important to him to tell his wife, Gertrude, what he had for lunch on the Titanic. First thing he did, ate a big lunch, took a big nap, and Gertrude got a letter about it. 
And how did they get the letter off the ship? Had they not sailed yet? They had sailed from Southampton, and then they left to go to Queenstown, which is now called Cove, okay. Ireland, C-O-H-B. And that is where the letters were mailed from. Okay. And the letter talked all about the cheeses, the Roquefort cheese. So I looked up, and sure enough, April 10th, same cheese assortment. <laughs> Which tells us if you want to have a Downton Abbey style party or a dinner, hey, these are the kinds of assortments that they put together back then. And I love out of the you know six that we've named, only one of them we wouldn't be able to get. Right. Exactly. You know, the, the hundred years later, these cheeses have survived. And so many of them can be, a, you don't know, have to have Edom. You can use Mimolat, which is amazing. Yeah, Edom was Irish too. Yeah. 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 And it's kind of. I also read that J.P. Morgan was supposed to be on the ship and canceled like last minute. Yeah, there were a, a bunch of examples of that. Yeah. Uh, Hershey, Milton Hershey, another foodie that you know we love to study through history. He was supposed to be on the ship too. I mean, I guess it was like the maiden voyage of the Concord. Or, you know, I'm trying to think of what's the equivalent. Yeah. You know, so there was a, some status to being on that first and only. Maybe you know. Voyage of the Titanic, right? You know, as sort of who's who, of who's who, a society from multiple countries, from multiple countries, yeah. but both sides of the Atlantic. Like Paul Cardin, I, I know because I read a letter that he wrote that I found through newspapers.com. I did a lot of my research through that. Um, he actually postponed his trip to go home back to Maryland, as a lot of people did, so that he could travel on the Titanic. Yeah, it was amazing. It, you know, Gail was talking a little bit ago about the um, the state of the art kitchens, and they actually had sorbet makers, they had electric sorbet makers, ice cream makers. The young man behind us here, this is Adolf Matman, and he was from Inwell, Switzerland. He was a 19-year-old boy, striving to fulfill his dreams, working in culinary, and he was the ice cream maker. He made all the ice cream. So uh, another chef from the Chicago area, Chef Michael Elliott, contributed a recipe, sort of in honor of that whole theme, and it's French vanilla ice cream. And what I learned, it's I on the menu. Yeah, yeah. it's on the menu. And I didn't know the scale, but the difference between French vanilla ice cream and American ice cream. The yolks. The, the yolks. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that all these years. And I love that it came out of the book. It's good for people to have a little bit of that history in the Imagine lives. how much ice cream they must have gone through that they needed one guy just to make ice cream. Like, I love that thought. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that was a job title. Right. What, do you, what job are you applying for? The ice cream maker. <laughs> I just love that. Well, and a lot of people, uh, there was a coal strike going on. So there's, yeah. There was, you know, shortage in energy. There was a whole article I read about, um, some people were saying like they were pushing the ship too hard and they were rushing, and other people theorized like, no, they weren't rushing at all because there was a coal strike at the time. They didn't really have like excess fuel to use up. And they were on this, you know, very tight, not tight schedule, but exact schedule where they needed to get to New York at a certain time, and if they'd gotten there like six hours earlier, it would be bad, because, you know, whoever's supposed to meet them. Right. So they were on this really regimented schedule, 
And part of it was because of the coal shortage as well. Yeah, and it also, the, the shortage contributed to people uh, jumping on the first ship that could go out uh, in any capacity. So the chocolate eclairs that are in the book from Gail, her lovely recipe for chocolate eclairs, they're sort of an honor in, in what I was hoping to do is honor the man who was actually a, a fine pastry chef like Gail, but on the Titanic, he had just took, taken a job as chief baker, which for him was a, a huge step for him to go from French pastry chef on the finest shows to head baker, but he was on the Titanic and he got to go to work. Mm -hmm. so, and he had a, an amazing story. Um, this man, he is one of my greatest heroes ever after reading about what he did. He had a checklist he had to go through to get all the loaves of bread on the lifeboats. Then he had to go and get help get lifeboats filled. And he's kind of been a, a comics relief uh, character of drinking. He's the man that we've seen in movies where he's drinking a bottle of booze. And I actually found out that through his great niece that it was not scotch, that people have always thought he drank a whole bottle of scotch. But it was um, it's schnapps. He said he always said it was schnapps. And um, had anybody ever seen that or heard about him? Uh, his name was Charles Jockin, and he told the British inquiry about it. He survived just by clinging on to people on lifeboats. He made it through, and then when he was picked up by the Carpathia, he told the British inquiry later that they, he was so frozen, he said, they popped me into the oven like one of my own pies. To get them all out, to all out. And, um, I can't imagine what that oven looked like, it, if that was actually true, but um, you get the idea of how cold it was for those people trying to recover. But what happened to Charles, what really moved me, and how I, I felt so inspired through these stories of people and all related to food. He was, he knew his lifeboat assignment, and when they went to fill that lifeboat, he helped fill it. And then when it was time to get on the boat and be a, a crewman and, and row the boat, he was not given the order to get on the boat. Can you imagine? Really? Yeah. And, uh, Politics, you know, who knows what happened. But um, he said that's when he went back downstairs to his quarters and had a nap. And back in those days, ship staff probably had jigger rigged um, stills, you know, they had access. Yeah. He would have had access to the fruit to make schnapps and the different types of. Um, Some of it was just making it on its own because the refrigeration, yeah. you know, wasn't as good in those days. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, so his story just absolutely was incredible, and he had survived a couple of other disasters. He was on the SS Hawk when there, when there was an emergency there, and he almost didn't survive. And then he went on for years and years to continue work on the sea. He ended up working in New Jersey. He was an Englishman, but he ended up working in New Jersey in a hot dog stand. So again, that food you know, uh, life that he had always known was with him to the end. I heard about another woman who she wouldn't get in the lifeboat because her, her great Dane was on the ship and she would not separate from her dog. And Elizabeth Isham. Is she the one from Evanston? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Her father 
was in a law firm with Abraham Lincoln's son at the time, or had, around that time. She actually wasn't living in Chicago at the time of the Titanic, but she was definitely a Chicago person. And she was, um, I forget exactly where she was living at the time. I want to say New York. Um, but yeah, they found, they thought they saw a woman with a, a large dog and who didn't make it. And she was one of the few um, females. females in first class that did not make it. Yeah. Um, you were talking earlier too about the men who survived, and I always say nobody survived. Like no, it was like no one will survive this. It was such a brutal, was such an emotional. Like you're scarred for life. Is what you yeah, said. and for the men, like the gentleman I mentioned, who wrote the letter home to his wife, um, his great grand, his great granddaughter, Astra Burka, and uh, she was with me on a panel this summer at the Gage like Gail and I are talking now, and she has just very sad memories of the story she was told about her. Her grandpa would have to drive through the streets of London, and he had a chauffeur, he was a first-class passenger, and um, his chauffeur, Patch, would have to drive him all night so he could get to sleep because he was so fraught with those mm -hmm. memories. And the public scorn. The, you know, people were... Yeah, if you survived, well, there was public scorn for the, was it the designer of the ship? Is Ismay. Ismay. Ismay? He survived. Apparently, he got into one of the last um, uh, rafts, mm -hmm. so like a blow-up raft. And it, I guess what he said was, from his side of the ship, no one was getting onto anything anymore. And he thought everyone had escaped, and so like he gets on one and survives. And everyone's really mad at him because you know at that point they realize not everybody did survive, and he didn't know that. And you know, he was the designer of it and, and lived in shame, I guess, the rest of his life. And the story of the money boat, the, with the um, fashion designer, Lady Duff Gordon, who, if you want to know what her designs look like, just think Dungeon Abbey. Just mm -hmm. All those beautiful uh, dresses were her style, and she kind of introduced that, and mm -hmm. she never lived it down, and only recently were letters found in her lawyer's office by a young intern in London who discovered them that it, that vindicated her. But for years, for the rest of Lady Duff Gordon's life, she was accused of having tried to buy the crew off, pay them off, to row away from the others, the people that were in the water, and not to go back to pick people up. When in fact what had happened was these letters showed um, she had actually paid these men because they told her, we just lost our jobs. You know, we're out of work now, and so she's not going to some money. And that got interpreted, you know, as she was like bribing them. Bribing them. Interesting. Yeah, and so uh, all of those stories. It sounds like there was sort of a form of PTSD that, yes, traveled with their survivors in one form or another. Very much so. Yeah. PTSD for sure. and. Um, and you know, there's survivor guilt. Survivor guilt. Yeah. Um, so these stories were amazing to me. Um, when I was starting to research and write the book, it's a it's a lofty thing to do. Did you lose yes. have trouble sleeping? I think I I might know about these personal family stories of loss. Yeah, it was it was very. Yeah. I was very affected by it. That. Nothing, you know, overly 
I didn't need to talk to the professionals. But I really was powered by these people. Um, I found out while I was writing the book that my mother passed away suddenly. I got a phone call at work and a man told me your mother just died. And then, you know, I had a deadline that week. We had to get a certain part of the book done. And so I got really good at compartmentalizing. But if you can imagine going home from work after a day like that, and then you've got to plow through these stories. You've got to document other people's loss, but not think about your own. Yeah, so it was really, I mean, it was like that. And at the same time, like how you just described it, Gail, but at the same time, it was also these people's stories, if they can get through this, I can get through this. So it was, it was really neat. And then six months after my mother passed away, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was just shocked. I thought, how can I be getting this so soon after my mother passed away? And again, it would be compartmentalizing. And just I remember we talked about yeah. that. I didn't want to say at the time, but that was when my Ireland trip got called off. I got diagnosed with breast cancer. And so that trip was you know, right in the middle of when I was going to do my surgery. And yeah, we kind of had it together a bit. I really did. Okay, okay now. Okay. Yes, I'm, I'm 100% myself. I just had my mammogram six months after treatments last month, and I came out very good. So um, good news there, and I was very blessed. But it, I, I believe it was no coincidence that I was given the gift of doing this book because it was a gift for me to be able to do this. And at that time, when I really needed to turn to these stories, these people, and delve into them and read about what they did and talk to their relatives and then put it into a story, um, and I think it really... The timing was good because you were thinking about others you know, while you were going through your own stuff. Yeah, and that's such a good thing to mention that thinking about others it's such a great way to get through things. And I think when you're writing, I mean, that's sort of the focus the whole time. You know, you're not writing for yourself, really. I mean, I, I like the fact that my recipes are documented, so if my computer crashes, I can go to one of my books to find them. But, you, you know, you're really sort of writing for others and telling the story of the dish or, you know, explaining what kind of movement you make to create this mousse or whatever. So writing in general, I think you're you're always thinking of others. It's a it's a what's the word I want? When you're giving to others. You're like a cheerleader in my mind, like you're begins with an A. Advocate altruistic. Altruistic altruistic. Um actually have you read those articles lately about that cooking is being considered um, really good for your mental health. There's culinary therapists out there now that cook with you. Oh, to, yeah, yeah, it's a new thing, and and they're celebrating the altruism of baking because when you bake, you're not generally baking like you don't make your own birthday. Well, I do, but you don't make your own birthday cake usually or your own wedding cake. But I do because no one's making one. But you're usually baking for others, like you're bringing it to sun. It's this this natural form of giving that apparently is you know, helps with mental health. Um, so bakers are mentally more healthy, apparently, than others. <laughs> I would believe that. Oh, that's true. I think it's that true. Um, I did bring my James Beard Awards with, in case anyone wants to do selfies with them. Um, so I'll just leave those up. Don't, don't steal them, though, but I'm kind of here. You know, I bring them when I, like, interview for consulting jobs. I'm like, 
when they ask me how much I want to charge, I'm like, wait, let me get my beard awards out and set them down, and then we'll talk about price. But this is, I don't know if you've ever seen one, this is what they look like, it's got James Beard on it. And you know, this is like a, the Oscar, like an Oscar in my industry, so. Um, one is for best service at True, which Richard was a, a, a sommelier at True. Um, and one is for best pastry chef, outstanding pastry chef. So you can play with those and do like a Mark Spitz thing with them if you want. <laughs> Did you get those in the Chicago Awards? Or we know that it was New York. Oh, New York was Yeah, hair yeah. and makeup, right? And was that at Australia? Chelsea Peter? No, it was at, let me think, I think one was Lincoln Center, and I think one was the Marriott Marquis. Okay, I remember right. Lincoln Center was the pastry chef one because I remember running out to the bathroom to fix my mascara because I was like crying the whole time. And Bobby Flay intercepts me in the lobby. He's like, Gail, do you know what this means? And I'm like, oh, no, what? He's like, you can double your day rate. <laughs> First response. What mostly, I mean, it was wonderful to get and the notoriety is great, but what they're really good, I keep them at home in the kitchen and if my husband criticizes, you know, he's like, really, that cheese with that dish? And I'm like, gee, honey, where's your James Beard Awards? Because mine are right here. Or he's like, oh, really, that wine with that glass? I pull out the best service award. You have your own TV show too. I did have my own TV show, which is when you were saying that you got the call, I was reminiscing about I had a show on the Food Network called Sweet Dreams for 10 years. And you know, people were like, How did you get a show on the Food Network? And I said, I, you know, I picked up the phone. Like there was a call. A call came to me. I never I didn't ask for it. Um, but they, I had done a lot of work like on Sarah Moulton's show and you know, various little projects and Food Network knew that they wanted to do their first ever all pastry, all dessert show and they're like, who do we get? You know, Jacques Therese, nah, his accent's too strong. You know, Francois Payard would be great, he's right here in New York, but mm, same problem, accent's too strong. What about Gail Gann? Like she's got a Midwest, you know, I think it was more about my Midwest demeanor and accent than anything. Um, and that, you know, I was nice enough to work with. Uh, the problem was I was short, and like Sarah Moulton, they had to build my countertops three inches lower than normal. So my set was a little, yeah, because that's what they do. You can either stand on half an apple box, like I do with Martha Stewart, you know, when I'm with her, or they can bring the counter down. So I just got lucky. You know, nowadays it's not how these things happen. Gail, I, how many of you have seen Gail's videos online with Julia? Because oh. I love to oh. just indulge sometimes, just to relax. And just, I, I watch Julia. She's so, so funny. I love, you know, she was 84 when I was on Making with Julia. So she had a little scoliosis, luckily. So she's like 5'10", maybe, and I'm 5 feet. So it's this very Mutton Jeff thing. And when I first got on set, set was her house in Cambridge. You know, it's like my grandma's house. And I get on set in her kitchen, and she goes, Now, dearie, if you're talking too much, I'll stick my thumb in your thigh. <laughs> Which is perfect, because it's like under counter. You know, it's gender neutral. It's off camera. Because after all, it is my show. <laughs> but if you, go, if you watch it, I'm so soft-spoken. It's like before I media trained, so I'm like this little meek 
granddaughter of a like we're it's like grandma and granddaughter cooking together. It's so cute. And it's it really is cute. You know, I was very blonde and before Food Network got a hold of my eyebrows, I had like these giant bushy eyebrows. And it's it's very darling. And I always kind of wondered like why did she say that? Because I, I didn't talk a lot back then. And the show she shot before Baking with Julia was Jacques and Julia. And if you go watch that show, Jacques, Jacques just railroads her. So I think this is true. I put in my own show, I'm going to be in control. She wasn't really cooking anymore at that point. Um, and the funny thing, she decides to write Baking with Julia, and Julia doesn't even bake, it turns out. So she calls 27 different pastry chefs to all write the recipes. We each get our own chapter, and we each do a show or two with her. That was, that was a great experience. Yeah, it's yeah. really something. And, and can you talk just briefly about you made roasted buffalo hump for Julia and Jack? <laughs> did Rick tell that story? No, yeah. I, I did I tell that story. Yes, while we were there, you go for like three days to film with Julia. So the first day you're just kind of getting acclimated and watching whoever's taping upstairs in the kitchen. You're like in the basement. Second day you do all your prep for you know all your mise en place, and third day you film. And on the second day that we were there, this big box arrives, FedEx box, and Julia opens it, and it's a buffalo hump. <laughs> and she turns, Rick was with me, Tremonto, and he, she turns to Rick, and she's like, can you make this, dearie? And you know, he's, he's like, of course. You know, and then we're like looking, I mean, it's before the internet, so it's not like you could look, you know, we're looking up like a butcher, right? chart with the dotted lines, like, where's the hump? Like, what kind of meat is that? And I guess it's, you know, the back of a bison or something. And so Rick's like, I'm just going to treat it like a steamship round. And I remember he, like, pureed up a bunch of onion and garlic and basil and olive oil, like, smears it all over it. And then we roast it forever, you know, for like six hours. And she's having a dinner party that night. We're all there, but like, so is her lawyer who just came back from Jamaica with this wacky rum and you know so, so the giant dinner, strawberry shortcake, corn, and like this beautiful composed salad with like fanned out tomatoes. We had gone back to the hotel shower and then come back for dinner while the hump is roasting. And we come back in the kitchen and Julia's got a baster, like a turkey baster. And I think, ah, she's so smart. Like she stuck a turkey in just in case the hump doesn't come out. Yeah. And then she takes the baster, and I know she sticks it in the bottom of the salad, and like, like sucks up the dressing from the salad and starts basting the salad so that she wouldn't ruin the composed. Um, yeah, like uh, that's why she's Julia Child, right? So we call it a salad baster now. It's not a turkey baster, but we took the hump out and it was gorgeous. You know, it's like all crusty and brown on the outside and it was rare on the inside. And we Rick carved it. And I remember at dinner, she was, you know, taking a bite and we're all like watching her. And she's like, that's hump I ever had. <laughs> she was so, you know, she was so funny. That is hysterical. What other stories do you want to hear, Scott? <laughs> Scott's request hour. <laughs> When you come back, yeah. uh, the next decade, well, I want more stories. You want to bring the Madeline Holmes, too. When I got her Madeline pants, they had crumbs in them. Oh, wow. And I was like, those are Julia's crumbs. Those are Julia's crumbs. <laughs> and I was, I had just written um, chocolate, I was, and it just turned in chocolate and vanilla, the manuscript, and there's some chocolate Madelines in the book. And 
New York called, it's like Friday at four o'clock, and New York called, the publisher calls, they're like, Gail, we need a yield on the chocolate medlins. I'm like, yeah, I'll give it to you on Monday. They're like, no, 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 we need it end of day. You know, I'm like, gotta get it by end of day. So I'm like, well, I don't really have any medlin pants at home, except my Julia Child ones, and they've got Julia's crumbs in them. I don't really want to like wash them. And I think WWJD, which isn't what would Jesus do, it's what would Julia do? <laughs> she would wash them, right? She'd do it. So I, I did it. I washed them. And, oh, that 24 is the yield, just so you know. <laughs> 24. Oh, that's sad. Any, any questions? Can we just Q&A? How much time do we have? Plenty. Uh, you could you could be speaking for another ten minutes if you want about the Titanic. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess one thing I wanted to tell you all about is a little bit more about popcorn dance, and I wanted to tell you who this woman is over here. Um, but the popcorn dance story is his popcorn wagon is down below there, and the money on the top picture there is. A, a really interesting story I wanted to share with you. So Papa and Dan lived in Merrill, my hometown. I'm actually, I actually grew up in Wausau, but I, when I was real little, I lived in Merrill, which is How far north is that? About five hours north drive. So, so more than halfway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just get some. Um, and a good old Facebook was how I got to connect with so many sources for the stories and uh, on Facebook, on the, the website or the uh, Facebook page, you know you're from Merrill if. Everybody's <laughs> in one of their hometown groups, right? On Facebook, that's mine. And um, someone had posted a picture of this money and they said they saw this on the National Geographic channel in a documentary and they could have swore it said Merrill on the, on the bill. And so the next time the documentary played, he recorded it, he taped it, he played it back real slow to get a close look, and sure enough, it says Merrill on the bills. So I reached out to, so I did my research, figured out that a museum has this money, and I asked for permission to use it in the book because Dan was the only Merrill person on the show. And this money was found at the Titanic website. Oh, this was so brought up from the ship. It was brought up from the ship, and so we can pretty much figure that's his money. That's his money. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to share that with because it's. A, and that's a lot of money. Yeah, for those days. Well, I'm just thinking, my, my great grandma Jenny came over from Hungary on not the Titanic, obviously, but a ship that left from England the same. Um, Southampton. Southampton. Yeah, she had to get herself there somehow and goes to New York to Ellis Island in 1906, so around the same time. She's got $8.04 in her pocket. Like that was, that was all the money she could scrape and her three kids and her rolling pin, which I have. Yeah. So I love that. I mean, it's no, you know, no mystery why I'm a pastry chef, right? My, my great grandma can't figure out what to bring, and she brings her kids, good news, all the money she can find, and she's like, oh yeah, and I can't live without my rolling pin. Like, I can't leave the house without my rolling pin. <laughs> yeah, so she had $8.04, so if he had $15 on him, plus some coins, that's a lot. Yeah, and he went on over. He, he kind of was, a, he had a little, a little dough. Um, he went out and bought a fur coat. A baking job. Right, <laughs> 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 
Uh, he went up both for Copeland, for Copeland he went, so a really interesting fella, and he's spotlighted in the book. And then this woman over here, does anybody recognize maybe who this is? That's Catherine Hepburn, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is Elise Lurette, and she's in Paris there. She was staffed to the Spencer family, of the Diana Spencer family, and of course, who is Diana related to that we all know the name? Winston Churchill. Oh. I don't know about that one. What, what did they say? I thought it was Barbara Pinkridge. She was related to her. Oh, I think it's related to who? Barbara Cartland's. Grandmother or something. She, she wasn't blood related. That was her. Through marriage. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I forgot about that. We got to cook for the Spencers when we were at Stapleford. You're kidding. Diana was not with them. Who was with but them? Her step, is it her stepmom, her dad, and her sister were there and came to the house for tea one afternoon. But I also, I did get to cook for, um, I cooked at Windsor Castle for polo, and Prince Charles was playing, and Diana was there. And the Queen was there, and the Corgis were there. And the Corgis. Prince Philip was there in his jag. Queen's there in her Range Rover, her Land Rover. Wow. Yeah, the whole fam, the whole fam family was there. Did you get to see them? I saw them. I didn't talk to them. I didn't have access to them. It was actually a luncheon that was designed by Paulo Cruz. The menu was designed by Paul Cruz. And it was executed by a famous London chef named Anton Mosseman. And he was close with the royal family, a Swiss chef in London. He had a place called the Belfry, and he was friends with who I worked for. And when I got days off, I would go work for his catering company, for Anton Mosman's catering company. So there was this catering gig. It was at Windsor Castle. Oh, is that like that? Sign up for that one. That sounds cool, right? And it was for 500 people during, you know, after the polo, following the polo. Following, we had, I remember we had bento boxes we were building that morning from like 4 a.m. in the morning in Schleppo to Windsor. And while we were, like, as we finished plating up the luncheon, Anton says the health department's coming through. Everyone, like, you know, button up and put your hats on and, you know, stand at attention. And it wasn't that the health department was coming through at all. It was that Paul Coos was showing up to take credit for the lunch. But there's a picture of me and Paul Coos and Anton Massaman from that moment. What were the desserts? Do you remember? I don't remember. I could go back and look. I don't remember. Well, I'm sorry I asked you to get this back, but I thought that would have been. I don't remember those really. The soda noodles for some reason in the bed box. Well, Elise saved a menu, and she had it with her when she was rescued in a lifeboat. And it was really interesting to me because she crossed something out on her menu, first class, of course. She was a servant to the Spencer family, and she was sort of safeguarding you know, their meals. So she was traveling with them? Traveling with them. Okay. And she actually, at that point, was a traveling companion more than any other type of servant. And one of the things she crossed out was Welsh rarebit. I was going to say that. Yeah, so uh, right away, my editor came back to me and said, we need to do a spotlight of Welsh rarebit because that was what she crossed out. Right. So has anybody here tried Welsh rarebit? I've had to make it. How do you? Yeah, because it's sort of an afternoon, you know, nursery food, or it's a savory, they call it, that you might serve. If you, you know, there's afternoon tea, 
and then there's your tea that's like your evening meal, and Welsh rarebit is sort of one of the savories that often gets served, like beans on toast, or you know, it's it's a it's cheese on toast basically, or like melted cheese on toast. So how can you tell us how to make it? Um, I think there's some booze in it. I think there's like beer in it or something to thin it out. It's a cheese sauce. Yeah. And then the cheese sauce gets melted over. And then I think it gets broiled. It's broiled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've made it in three years. Well, it sounds almost like an open-faced, fun, grilled cheese. It's kind of how I refer to it. It's just kind of putsy, but not, it's not it super. Was, it was sort of, you know, filling. And, and it's really for kids, almost. You know, that's why I call it a nursery food. There's sort of these dishes that, you know, children, it was like their version of mac and cheese, almost. You know, blue box. It's things that kids ate, or you just, kind of knocked it together really fast to hold you over to this later dinner. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, because I didn't know who had made it before. Who else here has made it? So several people have. Um, what, why were you making it? I like cheese. <laughs> How did you know about it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, it's in, I have my grandmother's and my mother's cookbooks and my own. And it's, it's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's somewhere. Yeah. It's almost like bar food in a way. Like, yeah, I would say it's like a pub food. Like an afternoon. Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, they're, I mean, at home, their big meal would be the midday meal if you lived in the country. And their evening meal would be like a much smaller thing. In the house, you know, maybe like a slice of ham and some mushy peas or it's interesting you mentioned that, Gail, because one of the things I learned from my research is that there, through the years, um, people ate different ways, right? Like high tea in England. But what was really interesting to me is that in steerage, they had one big meal of meat, gravy, and a lot of sustenance. Potatoes. Potatoes. In midday, always. Yeah, at night. right. And then they have these little things at night, like they might have beans on toast or wash yeah. rabbit to just kind of like hold them over. Mm -hmm. exactly. So yeah, the three classes were so distinct then. Well, you had all these opulent eleven course meals and first class for dinner. You were eating beans on toast and. And I, I feel pretty safe saying that what first class didn't finish probably went into what sixth class was eating. Never thought of that. Yeah. Probably a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Grilled. Like things from a buffet, you know, that didn't yeah. get eaten. She should have reworked into the other classes' foods. Well, and I don't, I just mentioned, jumped in and said gruel, but I doubt that was one of the things that came from first class. <laughs> but there was gruel on the menu in, in steerage. And um, like you mentioned, those basic foods, cheeses, breads, brown bread. They have sort of a whole culture, I think, that's based on, like a whole culinary culture based on bread and bread crumbs, is what I noticed. And this is, you know, I lived there in the 90s. They're in rationing from World War II through 1961. So it's part of why, like, sugar was very dear and, you know, butter was very precious. And, um, and it really sort of shaped their food for, you know, their cuisine for a long time. Um, That's interesting. That does make sense. And, oh, I was talking about the breadcrumbs. So, like, they have brown bread ice cream. 
Oh, in England. They have they have bread sauce. So it's a like on Sunday you have a Sunday roast dinner, but sometimes you'll do like a pheasant and you might serve it with bread sauce. So it's a, a gravy or a sauce that's thickened with breadcrumbs instead of flour and butter. And it's a way to use up the crumbs. Um, if you've ever had like bangers and mash had British, you know, English sausage, it's got that sort of gummy texture, and what that is is bread in the meat, in the ground meat, so it holds on to the fat, so it doesn't release its fat, it, it keeps it, and it gives this sort of like soft, kind of chewy texture. Mm -hmm. So there's a, like, that's an ingredient, breadcrumbs. I mean, it is yeah. here too, like for meatloaf, and, but it's in sweet stuff and savory stuff, uh, apple brown betty, you know, that's an apple dessert, but the topping is breadcrumbs with butter. Apple Brown Betty. That's yeah. another one of those quaint oh, names. Jam Roly Pony. There's so many of them. Sticky Toffee Pudding. Yeah. I just taught a great British Bake Off class at uh, King Arthur Flower in Vermont. Oh, and we, I was going through the list of all those funny, you know, names of desserts. Spotted Dick and Shrewsbury Cakes, which isn't a cake at all. And, yeah. you know, Hasty Pudding, which isn't pudding at all. It's a steamed cake. They use the word pudding, though, to mean dessert. It's like a generic term. Like I'm a pudding chef over there. <laughs> because it's like and then they shorten it to pud, you know, that like my nickname's pud. Yeah. And what is the thing that you mentioned that isn't a uh, cake? Shrewsbury cake. Shrewsbury cake. They're really old. They're from like the fifteen hundreds. And it's actually just a little flat biscuit made with um sugar, butter, flour, and sometimes flavored with depends on what decade you're in or what century you're in, but sometimes rose water, sometimes caraway seed, which is what I used when I did it last week. Um, sometimes lemon rind, sometimes just vanilla. So there's interesting spices that go in because, you know, England ruled India at one time. Right. So Indian spices get into their their baking. Very much. Yeah. Way before we yeah. return that to it. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll have to talk for another five minutes. And could you fill us in any more about the Titanic uh, before before we sink this program? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the the my favorite recipes is Gail's apple meringue that Catherine made for today, and I wore my apple pin oh, from uh, Marion Weaver from the 1930s because it's apple season, and what I wanted to really um, stress today when we talked was that you know it's fall and we're talking fall foods from the Titanic. Um, there were a number of items that I went through and curated for today's purposes, and there were things like white jelly on the menus, mm -hmm. uh, marmalade, beetroot, Waldorf pudding, which of course has apples in it. Um, apples Manhattan was on the menu. Cornbread. Uh, pureed beets, roast turkey, cranberry sauce, and oysters. So the book has a whole section on how to entertain with oysters safely and flavorfully uh, at home. Because, like we talked about in the beginning, oyster safety. I like that. Yeah, you gotta be thinking about how to shock them. Yeah, wear gloves. Um, and, yeah, wear gloves and make sure you know what where to put the knife in um, to be able to bring that element of Edwardian dining into your party or dinner. Um, the cheese assortments that I mentioned are just one example of what's in this book that can help frame an Edwardian or uh, Edwardian era party or a meal, or just even have people over for dessert 
after getting going out for a movie or something, have them over for the apples, apple meringue or something, and maybe one of the cocktails. The book also has several pre-prohibition cocktails. And that all came out of that first magazine article. Um, I first started working with Frank Kayafa, who was at the time at the Waldorf Astoria in New York as the bar manager. The, the, he managed the program there. Can you imagine what an yeah. amazing legacy for him? And then the Waldorf Astoria uh, closed for renovations in the last few years. But the Waldorf Astoria was actually started by John Jacob Astor IV, who was probably the most most well-known, wealthiest man in first class. He did not survive, and he left behind his pregnant wife, newlywed. Is that Lady Astor? Yes. Because we stayed at Clifton, um, which is a country house hotel that the Astors owned. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's the same Lady Astor. Yeah, I wonder. I'll tell them that. I think it is. I think same family. Same yeah. family. Definitely the same family. Um, and so we have a couple of really neat pre-prohibition cocktails in the book that I wanted to um, highlight for you because I've fallen in love with them. One is the Robert Burns. It's a nod to the Scottish poet Robert Burns, um, who is from the same town as the violinist on the Titanic, who's featured in the book, Dumfries, Scotland. What I love about the Robert Burns is this quaint, harkens back to those days, kind of cocktail you don't see it anymore. It's served with a very special garnish. Can anybody tell me what it is? The garnish for the Robert Burns? Sugar cube? I'm just guessing. You're onto it. It's really? a shortbread cookie. Oh. And that's how it was served to oh, me. because it's Scottish. Story. Yeah, because it's Scottish. And I, I had never heard of that before. So I love sharing those things in the book. Another cocktail is called the Clover Club, and it's made with egg whites, and it turns out a really pretty pink. I love that it's kind of a girlier drink for Valentine's Day, for Easter, um, and even for this time of year, too. It's a nice, I mean, this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so pink is a wonderful um, cocktail color, too, right? I like that you honored one of the musicians, too. As you probably know this story, but you know the story they say is that the musicians just kept playing as the ship was being evacuated to try to keep people's spirits up, knowing that they weren't going to make it off. You know, knowing that this was their last sonata or their last. My dad was a musician, so I think of, you know, the devotion that these musicians had. I, I mean, I'm the help. I consider myself the help, you know, as a cook, and that's how they were. It's like our job is to keep others' spirits up in this, you know, time of tragedy. Was it a Quartet, I think that was playing. Uh huh. Yeah, and they just continued to play, you know, while this tragic evacuation is going on. Yeah, and and they, it's they, there's nothing they'd rather do. Right. At that, you know, they've got, you know, it's like what's people always ask me, like, what's your last supper? You know, what's what's the last, you know, for these musicians, what what do you want to do in your last hour of life? And they want to play music for others. For altruistic again. That's the power of this book so much is thinking about what do people do. And like Joaquin, the violinist I was talking about, he ran into one of his friends from another ship that he worked on right after the Titanic hit the iceberg, and he said, We're just going to go upstairs and we're going to cheer people up a little bit. 
And that's, that was that motion right. that you mentioned, Gail, that um, you see that in these stories. I feel like you were there. Like you're telling the story like you, you know, were there talking to someone and writing this all down at the moment. That's a, quite a skill you have and a gift. Thank you. Well, I read a lot of books. <laughs> and I read a lot of books and um, watched a lot of movies. Did you find out uh, what meals or what food the survivors were served on the Carpathia? Well, can, can you repeat each question that you get? Sure, yeah. So this question is, uh, what were the survivors served on the Carpathia? And I know that I did have a note about that. I, the specific foods, I can't tell you, but it was... That's um, the next book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that they had tea and hot biscuits, for the, or biscuits and hot tea for them. She was grabbing cakes with that. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> and some of the, um, you know, they, I, I do remember reading about how they really went into overdrive to get food ready for the people coming. I feel like I saw like a cracker, like some kind of biscuit wrapper or something that someone in one of the lifeboats had. The heart attack. That's it. Spills? Yes, that's what it is. Yes. And they had heart attack on the lifeboats. Oh, okay. It's a, like a hard cracker type of uh, biscuit. From very Civil hard times. From where? From Civil War times. From Civil War times, right. And I found a couple that has a survivalist website and they contributed a recipe for hardtack in the book. So it, it's really comprehensive of covering all the different topics and yeah. It's, so the menu on the lifeboat would be a chapter in your book. <laughs> 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 well, it was interesting some of the things that people had in their lifeboats and what they took with them. Uh, there's a story about a man who for, did not take certain things to take oranges to have a room in his pocket. They were very exotic. They were very exotic. And time. they didn't grow in England. They still don't. You know, yeah. So they're, they're uh, an import item and very exotic. So we can't relate to that. Mm -hmm. If you were looking at a table, what to grab, you would probably not grab an orange. Mm -hmm. But oranges, um, you know, all the different, um, all the different fruits that we have today. You know, we're yeah, they, they can't grow citrus there, and it doesn't get cold enough in England to grow like hard winter wheat. So their wheat has a really low protein content. So like that's part of why the bread in England's just eh, you know, just okay, because they don't really have proper high-protein wheat to be able to make, you know, serious crust and good bread. And it's the weather. It's why also, like, they can't, they don't have maple syrup in England because it doesn't get cold enough for the maple trees to do the whole running of the sap. Interesting. Yeah, I, they don't have maple trees, really. I know. So they don't have that fall colors that we have. And cranberries. Right. That's a Native American Yeah, word. yeah. We're so used to it. And yeah, do you have a question? No, no, I was just, you were talking about how precious oranges were. Um, back in the days when there were manor houses, one of the gifts that the owners would give to their servants at Christmas were oranges. In their stockings. Oh, I yeah. don't know. That's, That's why it was so precious. Yeah, yeah they were exotic. People would be given oranges for gifts by their employers who's sharing. I, I guess that makes sense, but I didn't, I never thought of it before. There's a question in the back. Straight, straight ahead. Yeah, they grow oranges in greenhouses and in America. It, 
takes off or took off, we're doing indoor farming. We're taking uh, warehouses and turning them into farms. And you don't have to worry about snow, rain, irrigation, or anything else. Can't they do the same thing? Well, at first, they actually, when they started building glass greenhouses, they used them to raise tea because they were paying so much to other countries, especially India, um, for tea, that they were like, mm, we want to grow it ourselves. So that was sort of the priority in the 1800s, was to bring um, tea growth to, to Boy, you're really opening my eyes. I didn't know how good we had it here. Right? Yeah. Oranges are nothing here. Come on. Right. No, they were like magic back then. Yeah, they were like magic. you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, have either of you made like the Titanic lunch or uh, like the cheese spread from the menu? And if, if you've done it more than once, what was the last thing that you made? I, I haven't. Well, I haven't made a lunch to prepare a lunch. I'd like to do that. Um, I have a friend who's done a lot of meals. He was going to be here today, but couldn't make it. But I tested the recipes in the book. And what I most recently did is I used Mimolette cheese and Green Island Blue in place of Roquefort to the Mimolette in place of Eden, because that's what I could get my hands on, something with similar texture and flavor to the Eden and the Roquefort that was on board. Did you have like a whole ball of Mimolette? Uh, or just a wedge? It was a wedge. Oh, okay. yeah. It's just as cute, though. Um, it's yeah. like a basketball. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a chicken because it's orange. And great color for this time of year. The reason I want to share that with you is because it's so easy to do something really special for honoring the Titanic and really Edwardian era. Yeah. If you you know have friends over before you go see the movie or something, all you need to do is have some cheese and crackers, and that's your little nod to the era. I think one year, um, so you know, I had Spritzburger with the Hardy Boys. But before it was Spritzburger, it was, I'm forgetting, it was, a, it was just called Hardy Boys, I think, the restaurant. And for New Year's Eve one year, they did a Titanic New Year's Eve party. So it's a great, you know, because everyone dresses up. I mean, it's New Year's Eve, so you can have a black tie affair. Yeah. You know, and wear period clothes from that time. And I, I know they did, because I remember them showing me the menu. We were trying to decide what to do for New Year's Eve, like the next year. And we looked at the Titanic menu they had done, and it was really fun. Yeah, and with this book that I put together, there's lunches, there's, we even have the sea trial menu in there, which was when they served clover to the crew. And clover is a seabird, which indicated to me that the chef who planned this meal was really trying to honor these men and women that had dedicated their lives to working on the sea. So there's all these really special menus. There's one crew menu that has rhubarb. I thought maybe they run out of protein, so that's why they have that bird on the menu. I, I mean, could be. <laughs> go, go on, I'm the rhubarb. I'm trying to be so romantic about it. But maybe that's what the like, We're on, what do we do? So the rhubarb, and I know I'm like rambling on here, but I'm so excited to talk about these ingredients. Rhubarb was on a handwritten menu that the crew had a couple days before the Titanic hit the iceberg, and uh, one of the stewards, Ed Wilson, saved it. So because it was handwritten, I'm guessing it was probably the back of the house was writing down the list more than a formal menu. Unless they were like writing it to get it typed or something. 
Oh, uh, that could be too, Gail, but maybe that was one of the printers. There were two printing presses on the Titanic, and they printed amendments every day. Um, so one of the things that I really gravitated towards was rhubarb, because I love rhubarb. We don't never used to see it at all. Now we very British too. And very British. Yeah. I went back and looked, found out that the first rhubarb seeds were planted in the United States. The first in the United States were planted in Philadelphia, uh, and it was you know like 1700s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that out and I thought, so that's interesting I love her. Um, and so, it, you know, it's sort of a spring, it's one of the first um, produce that comes in along with, you know, fiddle and ferns and asparagus, and it's a spring vegetable, it's technically a vegetable. Um, and I'm thinking the weather over in England is, you know, it never gets very hot. Right. Yeah, Mr. Penniston, the head gardener who lived next door, he grew rhubarb. He grew sweet peas on these like, uh, he had like bamboo sticks that the sweet peas would grow up. And in between the sweet peas, he had these giant rhubarb plants. And it just grows really well there. It thrives. So, yeah. Do question? Well, I uh, comment. On the bicycle ride that goes across Iowa, food is, is really primary because you're burning up so many calories. And pie is a huge deal. And the most coveted pie on that that you can ever get, and this is in July, is rhubarb. In July? Yeah. July. And there are conversations about it. And, you know, like one time I got some late in the day. Oh, you can't get rhubarb that late in the day. Because it would, it would sell out first. Oh, I was in July, though, and you know, rhubarb is often paired with strawberries, which again is like a June. Yeah, I know, but it was, it, that's why there wasn't, maybe that's why there wasn't too much. Strawberry rhubarb was more common, but I want, I wanted rhubarb. Yeah, you wanted straight. I had straight rhubarb. You said there were three classes of people on the boat. Uh -huh. What did the middle class eat? Uh, the middle class ate similar to first class in that they had a big dinner. Uh, every day, and not to the same scale, but even as many courses, right? Yeah, not as many courses is really the big key, and um, not as opulent and fancy, but still, you know, very nice food. I think, too, the service was a little turned down um, for the different classes, and the amount of uh, glassware and silverware. You know, in, in Victorian times and Edwardian times, they had tools for everything. I collect jam spoons and all you know grape shears and like I have this little fork it's it's very shallow and it has about 10 tines and they're curved and it's of course something everyone can't live without it's an asparagus fork you know so they have like forks for everything all different you know there were different many different kinds of seafood forks not just one kind like one was for oysters one was for shrimp so there's all this designated silverware that was part of first class as well. And I've got a tomato server. Because you can't live without that either. <laughs> you can't live without it. A girl runs one of those. What is it? It's a round silver. Perforated. Yeah, perforated so the juice falls through. One of my friends has a, it's a sterling silver nautilus shell that has like a trap door on it. And what it is, is it's a spoon warmer. So you fill it with hot water 
and you would put your teaspoons in it when you're serving afternoon tea, because God forbid your spoon should cool your tea down. So you need a spoon warmer. I just love a spoon warmer. Yeah, that's like such a Victorian, like there was a tool for everything. A tool for everything, yeah. Yeah. There was this gal right here had her hand up before too. That's a greenhouse gal. Yeah. I used to buy Durbanshire clotted cream. Uh, treasure Island. Uh -huh. There's no more Treasure Island. Where would you buy the Derbyshire clotted cream in Chicago now? I think, does Whole Foods have clotted cream? Yeah. Bonnie, no. Whole Foods. Bonnie. Whole Foods. Whole Foods. Whole Foods. Which one? Whole Foods. Whole Foods sells clotted cream. Or Blow Market on Wall Street. Yeah, it comes in little jars. It's not the best, but it's good. We'll take two more questions. One of the questions works. They're just talking about themselves. Okay, well, we'll take two more questions. One question is for me. Can you talk about some of the other great chefs like Gail who contributed to the book and what are their historically based recipes? Oh, good question. Thank you. Michael Lashowitz from uh, Winnetka here in the Chicago area contributed a, a pea souffle, spring pea. We talked about how um, peas and asparagus were ubiquitous, especially in first class, because those were the spring ingredients, lamb, duck. Um, and so Michael contributed that and a soup that, soup is sort of, Michael's soup is sort of juxtaposed with uh, Chef Craig Flynn at Chives because his is hot and Michael's is cold. It's definitely more of a cold soup. Cold a thing. They know that Gishiswas and Gishiswas, um, gazpacho. Oh, I think, okay. you know, it wasn't on the Titanic, but could have, you know, been in that era, because it's a cold soup, I always think of cold soups, and that's the first one that comes to my mind, but those uh, are beautiful recipes for the souffle and the soup. Um, there are, there's wonderful information in the book from the uh, chef at um, Grand Central Terminal in New York, at, Grand Central Oyster House. Oh, downstairs then. Yeah, where the echo chamber is. Do you yeah. Have there? Yeah. yeah, yeah. They were really helpful with explaining you know, how to entertain oysters, which is coming up for the holiday time, would be really a nice thing to do. And that's uh, featured in the book. Um, there's, a, there's a duck and carrot. It's like a um, carrot mousse type of, a, of an accompaniment with duck that was uh, contributed by the Loch Erin Resort in Scotland. And that is where the, you can, if you're there now, you can see where the Titanic first sailed from when she left the, um, when she left um, one of the ports there in, um, over in the United Kingdom. So um, it really, a lot of different shots. Um, who else, who am I missing? We talked about it. Yeah, let's take a peek here. Yeah. I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, oh, well, the Gage restaurant here in Chicago, I turned right to it, contributed caramel corn. Now, we don't know that caramel corn was on board, but it was in Chicago in 1883 where corn was invented here. Cracker yeah. yeah. So we're thinking that probably oh, it would have been a um, wonderful uh, treat. That's my theory of why Chicago mix happened. 
You know, at Garrett's, because we grew up on, I mean, we invented Cracker Jack here, which is a combination of salty peanuts and caramel corn. So that salt and sweet palate, I call that the Chicago palate. So we like, you know, cheese and dried fruit, and that's why Chicago mix got invented, which is caramel corn and cheese corn mixed together. Like, we all did it secretly, and then Garrett's noticed we were doing it, and then now they make it that way. But yeah, that's sort of a very Chicago palate, I think, is this salt and sweet combo. Yeah, very. Mm -hmm. There's a scotch egg in here from the game. Which um, is the best. Yeah. Um, and let's see. Let me just, I'm trying to think fast here because I know we're running out of time, but yet I don't want to miss anybody. Um, I mentioned the Welsh rarebit, and we have recipes for those from the Cock and Bull in New York. And tea and Sissy. There's there's one with beer. Yeah, um, okay, that's typical. Dark beer from the yeah, it's like as well. Yeah, real stout beer. Um, take a quick look for here. There's the scotch egg with mustard vinaigrette. And, and you know what? We can we can leave the suspense about who else oh. is in there. Oh, I I lied. I said there'd be two more questions, but we're we need to we need to we need to eat. Dine. So, and how how much is your book selling for? So, I have books here today that are thirty dollars signed. Are you willing to personalize as well? Yes. Okay. Good to know. And Gail, did you bring jam here? I brought um, this season's strawberry jam because Bonnie asked for it and this season's Concord grape jam, and I also have salted caramel sauce. I brought root beer, my cinnamon ginger vanilla flavored root beer, and I brought think jerky, the two recipes that I did, a beef and a turkey, and then I've got two books. I've got my lunch and my brunch book here. Oh, great. Anybody wants okay, one. You're, you're selling And I take credit cards, and I'm selling them. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'll be in the back there. So you, these are items that you're, you've prepared and you're selling? Yes. Got it. Yeah, it's merch that I'm selling. She makes the root beer. It's a family recipe? Um, it's not. I had to figure it out on my own, and then afterwards I found out my grandpa used to make root beer, but he died before I was born, so I don't have this recipe. No, I had to teach myself while I was a trio. I figured out how to do it. And I'm a small batch artisanal soda pop maker. My co-packer is Filbert's on the south side of Chicago who are third generation root beer makers. And he, Ron Gilbert, kind of helped me figure it out. But um, I do 70,000 bottles a year. It's sold nationally through Cisco. And that small batch, I'm like, that seems huge to me. But, and every time the CEO of Coca-Cola would come into True, I'd be like, dude, when are you gonna buy me out so I can retire on the root beer? Like, for all the 16 hour days you do as a chef, you know, 40 years of them, like, I wanted the joke to be that I retire on the root beer, but not, he hasn't bought me out yet, but maybe someday. So I have bottles of it back there. It's screw top, it's glass bottle, it's cane sugar, and caffeine free. Thank you. Thank you.